Welcome to Fragmented, a software developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better developers. My name's Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. Hey everybody, before we get going, I wanted to tell you about a brand new resource that I released. It's called Mastering Git. It is a free Git course that will teach you everything that you need to know on how to use Git from the ground up in less than 120 minutes. It's super easy to follow. You don't need any specific tools installed other than Git itself. I'll teach you everything you need to know from the ground up using the command line and the 20% of commands they're gonna give you over 80% of the benefits for you and your day-to-day engineering career. Now, there's a ton of Git commands out there. You may not be sure which ones you should use. I've been using Git for over 12 years now from the command line, and these are the distilled down commands that I use on a day-to-day basis. I'm gonna show you how to use each one of those from initializing repositories, making commits, how to create branches, conceptually what are branches, how do they work, branch naming strategies, how to merge, how to utilize merge tools, how to handle merge conflicts, how to merge branches, how to create pull requests on things like GitHub, how to cherry pick, how to view logs, how to create aliases and so forth. I cover all of that within this course. There's no fluff in it. We hop straight into it and you're gonna learn everything that you need to know in order to become a master of Git. Again, there's not a lot of commands that you're going to learn. This is the course that I wish that I had when I started. Doesn't matter if you're a beginner or if you're advanced, you're going to learn something for this. However, if your team member is new or you're just learning Git or you wanna be able to kind of understand it better, this is the course for you. So check it out. The link is going to be in the show notes. You can also view it at donfelker.com slash git. You'll be able to see a nice demonstration of what is inside of that course on that page, and it'll link you directly to the actual video itself, which is free on YouTube. You can also visit my YouTube channel, which is going to be at donfelker.com slash YouTube. You can find it there too. So again, go to donfelker.com slash git for the free git course and learn git and master it. And I really hope that it helps you. Let's hop into the show. Hey, folks, uh, just a quick note. I'm going to be hosting solo today because Don had an emergency and couldn't make it. But I'm stoked because we have an awesome guest. And one of my early inspirations as a Ruby developer in a past life, actually. So let's get started. I want to set the stage a little. Recently, I posted a tweet about pair programming for Android developers. I want to understand, is there any tool out there that folks are using for pair programming? You know, what, what's the state of the world, especially as a lot of us are working from home today? I got a whole bunch of suggestions and by far, in a way, the top recommendation was the service called Tuple. And it sounded familiar to me and I didn't exactly know why. But when I checked the service out, I realized, wait a second, the CEO of this company is Ben Orenstein. And that sort of rung a very strong bell. One thing led to another, and here we are. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Ben Nornstein to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. This is sort of high watermark moment for me because I've been following you for quite some time in the past. And, you know, when in a previous life, I've told a lot of the listeners I was a Ruby developer before I transitioned into Android, uh, into Android programming. So, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this. You got me on to Vim at one point. You taught me how to refactor Rails code at one point. 
But let's kick it off there. Our our audience is largely an Android developer audience. So for the few folks who aren't uh, aware of who you are, could you like maybe give us a quick intro, please? Yeah, sure. First, I just wanted to, I'm just like sort of struck by the way you phrase those things. Like I taught you, I, I got you into Vim. I taught you these Ruby things. It's kind of amazing how the internet scales you or just educational materials like can scale a person because I I didn't directly teach you any of that, that you were, you know, consuming things that I had made for the world. And you're not the only person who has told me things like, hey, you're the, you're the reason I got into Vim or uh, you're the reason I got into uh, Rails or something like that. And it, man, it's, it's such a cool thing. Having, having produced educational content is just, and like, it's, it, it's wonderful and, and it's still going. Like I, people are still watching talks I gave in like 2013 or even earlier. And it's, it's, it's a great thing. I'm I'm pretty sure you get this a lot, but the what's the name of the talk? Refactoring from good to great. This was Aloha conference, I, or maybe a mixing conference. I don't know, but that one was that one is super pop. I'll I'll post that in the show notes because it's pretty it's evergreen content too. Like you you can watch it today, and it still feels as relevant as it has ever been. I think that was yeah. I, thought, I think that was the best talk I ever gave. It was a nice distillation of a lot of my thoughts on refactoring and writing good code after really obsessing about it for years. And is a live coding talk, so it's it's me actually taking code on stage and you know changing it around, running the tests, making things go green again, and that seems to have uh, resonated with people in a way that uh, a lot of my other content did not. Yeah. So uh, can you give us like a quick trajectory of like all the different things? Because you know I know you're a prolific conference speaker, so I actually do have a bunch of questions on that. You know, because a lot of our audience is also very interested in that stuff. But before we even get there. How? What was the inspiration? Because you've talked a lot about refactoring, and you mentioned you've been obsessing over this. Can you trace your career? Did you just start off as a web developer one day, opening up Ruby, saying this is what I want to do, or yeah, just walk us through that process? I kind of had to fight my way into the programming world a little bit because I did not finish uh, college. I got kicked out actually because I was such a bad student. That is unbelievable. Like literally, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I believe that, but <laughs> it's, it's true. It's, it's true. <laughs> You know, 18, 19, 20 years old, I didn't really have self-discipline or study skills and just had a hard time applying to myself in an academic setting. Fortunately, I had a passion for programming. And programming, it turns out, is a career and is a world where you don't need a credential to get into it. So I thought, you know, oh, I want to be a programmer. I need a computer science degree. And f- fortunately for someone who's bad at academics, uh, you, don't, you don't actually need that. And so it took me a little while. I had to take some some pretty crappy jobs like bartending and and things like that. But I eventually found a company that was willing to take me on as an entry level programmer because I did well on their like a programming aptitude test and was able to start a steadily hop jobs from there within tech and and coding. And uh, uh, things kept getting better and better. So my yeah, I guess my I guess my professional career started off uh, behind a bar, uh, but then steadily moved <laughs> behind a keyboard. That is crazy. And very inspirational. No, no, thank you. And so I got uh, the the big leap happened when I got into the the, the world of Ruby. I taught myself Ruby on the side um, and thought it was like amazing because prior to that, my exposure in programming was basically all C, and I couldn't believe looking at Ruby just how how little you had to worry about. Like I remember, I just remember seeing an each block and just being like, "What about the bounds of the array?" <laughs> like I just being like, "Like where's the counter?" And was just like completely, I, I, and like where are the you know where are the semicolons and like the array subscripts and it's just like where is everything like how could this possibly work? Where is my memory being released? Yeah, exactly. It was like where where is everything? Where is all the detail? And it was all just you know don't worry about it. 
And uh, so I, I remember thinking like, wow, this Ruby thing is, is pretty incredible. I was turned on to it by uh, the pragmatic programmers who had written um, the pragmatic pro- programmer, which I still think is basically one of the best uh, books written on being, being good at programming. And they were into it. And so I was like, wow, if these guys are into it, this must be good. <laughs> so I started teaching it to myself on the side. I learned just enough Rails to kind of uh, convince, to, to, to pass a, an interview for a junior Rails position. And that was really when, when things changed for me professionally. Uh, I went from like a programming job I was really not into in kind of a uh, dead-end language to a world where everyone was passionate. And like when I got into Ruby, it was probably 2008 or so, maybe. And people were... Uh, it was a very exciting time in Ruby. Like it was like it was the cool, it was the, the kind of the hip, cool new thing where like the most passionate people were going, and so the energy was really high. There was tons of educational stuff, and I just like just jumped into it and, and had a blast. Um, so I, so I had kind of an, a, a turning point by entering Ruby, and then also another one by joining Thoughtbot, which is a, a pretty um, well known Ruby on Rails consultancy full of really passionate people who are like super into their craft, and I just learned a huge amount there. Yeah, ThoughtPod, I think, is where, like, you know, the first time I heard about, like, a lot of your work and, you know, I guess, the talks. Um, that's yeah. amazing. I had a, so a, at some point, w- did you all, and we're going to talk about, you know, Tuple in just in a sec, because I have a bajillion questions on it as well. But with respect to pair programming, right, was ThoughtPod, like, a shop that encouraged a lot of, like, pair programming? Uh, how how did, did that ever come in, or was that just, like, something that was organic for you? There was a little bit of pair programming at ThoughtBot, but not a ton. Actually, the pairing came to me at the job before that, my first Ruby job. So I had passed this interview. I was very green. I knew like a little bit of Ruby and a little bit of Rails. And to get me up to speed, uh, my boss and I paired for a few hours, basically every day for months. And I learned just a huge amount from him in a really crazy fast time period. and. That was when I really got exposed to the power of pairing because I was learning Ruby, I was learning Rails, I was learning uh, subversion at the time, workflow, you know, how to use Vim better, uh, how to debug things, like how, how do you write a test, in what order, that there was just a million little technique things that I was absorbing uh, by pairing. And it really stuck, and even though I didn't do a lot of pairing at ThoughtBot after that, this experience really stuck in my head as like, wow, this is just an unbelievably high bandwidth way of gaining skill. So I have a question for you, right? I've done a little pair programming too. And I think by and large, when I've asked everyone about pair programming, the experience has unanimously been great. Like everyone's like, oh, I really enjoyed this. You know, this, this is great. Like this is what we should be doing. But for some reason, I don't think it's caught on in the same way in like, you know, non-indie shops, right? You know, if you go to the big companies in the world, like, you know, the ones that are doing a large part of like, you know, the software writing today, I don't necessarily hear as much about pair programming. So I am curious what your thoughts are. Do you think it's just something that hasn't caught on because of the setting? Or do you think it just happens, but it's natural? We are at a point in this world where everyone does pair programming and it isn't called out as being separate? Or do you actually think not enough people are leveraging pair programming? I think of pairing as a tool within the the tool belt. There are some places and some people that think, yeah, you should pair on everything. And if that's what you want and you get good results from it, like that's fine. Sure. Like you can do that. I wouldn't tell people not to do that. I think pairing is a bit more of a 
tool to be used when it makes sense and when it feels good to you. I think it will always be more tiring than programming by yourself. Uh, there's like the when you're writing code and you get in the zone and it's just you and maybe some music or silence or whatever gets you in the zone, and you have the program fully loaded in your head and you're making changes and time just disappears. That's wonderful. Like that's a, that's such a great state to be in. And I wouldn't want to take that from people. And I, I think you can get in the flow in pairing, but you always have that like social thing where you're thinking about the other person. Like, is it time for a break? Are they doing okay? How do they feel about that? We're debating things. Are they okay with this decision? And so there's the social piece, and there's also the this double-edged sword with pairing, which is that it keeps you very on task. It becomes very hard to like go check your email or Twitter, like or like take a take a take a like a mini break kind of thing. And so pairing for two hours, I think, is more tiring than pairing like programming for two hours because you probably are like taking more mini breaks by yourself. And you can you can there are ways around this like pomodoros and things like right. planning scheduled breaks. So there's there's things you can do, but I would say on average you're going to be a bit more drained after pairing, mm. perhaps. And it's not for everyone. Like it's it's a it's a, it's a sort of extroverted uh, work style in a way. Mm. Uh, so like it's probably extra draining if you find interaction with people draining as opposed to energizing. So I I, I basically I am a very big fan of pairing. I think it is an incredible way. To accomplish what most like accomplish things that most teams want, like it's a really incredible way to spread knowledge around a team. Mm-hmm. It's a fabulous way to onboard a new developer. It is a great way to reduce defects. Um, it's a great way to improve average code quality mm. because the code that's produced by a pair is the max of both programmers' ability. Right. So, and I think it works better than code review for things like catching bugs, having better design, staying consistent, that sort of thing, because you can push back on things in the moment in a pair that you wouldn't really want to do on a code review where it just it feels like, uh, I mean, Kaushik has already written this whole you know thousand line PR, but I, I wish he'd designed this differently, but I'm not going to like spend all the social capital to ask him to rewrite it. So, so I'm a huge pairing. I'm, I'm a big pairing advocate. I think it does a lot of wonderful things and does some things better than practices people are often doing already. But uh, I wouldn't go as so far as to say like, everyone should do this. You should do it all the time. It's always the right answer. I think it is a powerful and and quite good mostly tool. But if you said, "Hey, I find it too draining," I'm going to pair a couple times a week. I would say that sounds very reasonable to me. Or like, I just want to write this by myself because I want to get in the zone and it keeps me productive and happy. And I would say, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, it's funny because I think with so pair programming started with the whole like agile software development sort of world around the that that time right with extreme programming and that was one of the things that they said they're like look you only work eight hours a day but you pair the entire time right and you know part of that is because uh, I, I forget some of the name of the shops here uh that practice it pretty uh, pivotal labs i guess uh, is one of the other they're like extreme programming all the way right at least that's how they used to be and i i know a few friends who work there and they used to say the same thing which is after you pair, like you're drained, you're exhausted because, yeah, like you said, you don't take those mini breaks where you're like, okay, I'm waiting for a build to happen. You know, I'm going to like quickly check my email, like check Twitter. But it's almost like, you know, well, if you came out of that, are you more productive? Like, you know, does the company benefit more from having had your people pair the entire time? It's it's easy to say yes to start with, but I think you capture that really well, right? Because 
someone gets drained within like two days, like, you know, it, it's like, are you running a marathon or a sprint, right? Like, you know, I think that's the sort of challenge that comes up more often than not with pair programming, I feel. How do you think about pair programming? Like, so if if I were to say, like, if you think about your daily, and I know like currently you play a, a large part of like, you, I don't know how much of like IC time you get uh, at Tuple now, but I am curious, how do you think about pair programming? Do you still like reach out for it as a tool outside of just like using it for tuple testing? We pair on non-programming things at tuple. So not shockingly, we're pretty big pair advocates, pairing advocates. And so we pair a lot on code and we pair on non-code. So I'm not writing code these days, but I am working on things like sales deals or marketing campaigns. Can you talk to me a little about that? Because that's fascinating to me. Like what does like pairing on non-coding things mean? Can you like elaborate a little on that? Yeah. Well, sometimes it's just as simple as like, let's review this document together. And like, I'll pull it up and you're looking at my screen and we're both like kind of reading it simultaneously and calling out different areas uh, that we're interested in. Sometimes I even just do like co-working almost like where I will hop on a tuple session with someone and like, we're just working on different things, but, but you know, talking to each other, like, like having like a, a buddy sitting next to you sort of thing. I do design pairing. Actually, just yesterday I did a design pairing session where I did, was on a tuple session with our designer. And we were reviewing mocks for a thing that we're building. And we're just live saying, well, what if what if you move the search bar over here? And he'll sort of quickly mm. move around in Figma and say, well, how about this one over here? Oh, let's, this color needs to match this. And then how about this hierarchy? Um, and it's, I think, I think pairing suffers a little bit from a marketing problem mm. in that people hear pair programming and they think like, it's this process that you, it's this art that you need to understand and is sort of this like complicated or sophisticated approach to pair, to programming. And it's true that there is a skill to be learned there. You can get better at pair programming as an activity. And I think there are concrete things. Like you could say like this person is better at pairing because XYZ. But at the same time, it really is just two people like looking at the same code and working together. Like at the two if if you have two progr- if you have two people looking at the same work product and working I, I I call that pairing. Like does it like design pairing? We're both looking at the mocks. One person is at the controls, but it it just has two brains applied to the problem in real time, and that's really all it is. Like on the programming side as well, it's like you don't. It doesn't have to be this complicated ballet of who writes what and who switches when and what are the break schedules look like. And it, it can really just be as simple as like, hey Kaushik, you 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 wrote some of the auth code over here, right? Like, will you just look at this while I'm working on this and kind of help me find the right bits and five questions like and it's like yeah you're just we're just two programmers working over here yeah no i really like the way two things that just came out of what you just said is one there is this complicated ballet i like that word choice like you know there there seems to be like this complicated ballet about oh there's one person who's the driver there's the other person that's the observer but really it's just two people like you know jamming on this thing right and i feel that is a much better way to sort of uh, portray what pair programming is. And I think the pairing is, I, actually, I think I'm going to start switching that because I keep, it's almost like pair programming is the thing in my mind, but I, I noticed that you keep saying pairing and I think that actually is a much better description of it because, you know, like how you talked about pairing with a designer, that's, oh, that makes perfect sense to me, right? Like that just, it resonates pretty strongly. I wanted to ask one thing. so. Post COVID, like a lot of folks have been working from home, and 
I imagine like, you know, that art of pairing has like, you know, people initially thought like, hey, pairing, like, you know, is no longer a thing. It's hard to do it. Obviously, I imagine that's where some of the whole like, hey, maybe there should be a tool for this <laughs> came came about. W- what was your experience? Like, because obviously I you started Tuple. So actually, let's start there. Like, can you tell us like more about Tuple? Because I think I've been like mentioning Tuple, but I didn't actually call out what Tuple is. So could you tell us a little about Tuple at this point? Yeah, Tuple is a an app for remote pair programming. So it is a we have a Mac OS app, a native Mac OS and a native Linux app. And the pieces you need for pair programming are screen sharing with very high quality, um, remote control with very low latency. So if you want to take over someone's machine, it's not hard to do that. And ideally, you know, nothing in your way. So we were originally inspired by this tool called Screen Hero uh, that existed back in the day, and I used it for pair programming. And it was, you know, it was they did it had they built a nice app. And uh, Screen Hero got acquired by Slack and then shut down and never really rolled into the Slack product. Unfortunately, kind of a I guess a an acquisition that just didn't didn't quite work out. It's funny because I think I've mentioned Screen Hero on the podcast and I'm like, oh my God, there's this amazing tool. Everyone should try it. And literally a month after they got acquired and I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was great. And like we, a lot of people loved it, uh, including me. And um, it, it suffered an unfortunate fate. And so I would ask around my programmer friends and ask them what they used now that Screen Hero was gone. And no one really had a good answer. And that kind of set off this like little thing in my head where I was like, huh, that's interesting. There was this, this good thing. It went away. There's still this opportunity here, but there's nothing that seems to have stepped in the gap in the intervening years. So we have had other tools though. Can you talk about like, what are the specifics that like made you think like, because I mean, I hate to say, yeah, you could use Hangouts or like Zoom or something, right? Like, yep. and the screen sharing has gotten better. And yeah, and I like, like you said, like, you know, Slack has some portion of screen hero like I, I still feel the implementation i remember the implementation being very different from what slack has today versus what screen hero was there are solutions you know and they granted they don't work as well but what was the impetus for you right you know was there something where you're like well this exists but it's just not that like what is that thing that you felt needed to happen that led to tuple sort of form uh, so it's a few things one of them is it sounds weird but it's literally just like clunkiness mm. Like, is this tool pleasant to use? And if you've used something like Zoom screen sharing with that like big control toolbar that you have to move <laughs> around the screen and gets in the way and like the like, Ben would like to control your screen. Is this okay? Do you approve this thing? And uh, meeting invites and follow this URL and uh, things like that. Click multiple times to end a call. Like there were, it was just enough that like, it felt to me like the seamlessness was not there. Like a thing that if you make a thing a bit easier, people will do more of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when I looked at the experience of, of pairing over Zoom, Meet, Skype, that kind of thing, it never felt like this is an experience people can love. It was like, this is one small feature in a larger mass market product. And it will never care about the things that I care about as a programmer. Like one thing is, is latency. Mm. Like if you're going to control a, uh, someone's computer remotely, you care a lot about 75 milliseconds of additional latency on something. Right. But if you're if you're Zoom, you probably don't really care about that that much. Um, if you're you know if you're if screen sharing is mostly for presentations, mm. like I'm going to share a, a deck with you or a Excel spreadsheet, you don't really care. But if you're doing remote control, it's a big. It feels very different. 
And so my theory was, if we make it less clunky, if we focus hard on latency and also focus on quality, like biasing screen share quality, Hmm. like on tuple calls, we separate the screen share and the audio track and the webcam track so that we can degrade them differently. And so that like your screen share quality takes high priority. So it's like you might get a little crackly or the webcam might slow down a little bit, but the screen share looks crisp. It's funny. I was I was going to ask that exact same thing because I mean, I have tried Cupel. So obviously it's funny. It feels that there's like this very, it just works like, you know, it for the tool. And so I was going to ask, like, you know, when you actually build the product, do you actually look at like the two streams independently? And it sounds like you do, right? Like you actually, you have like parameters that you tweak depending on like the network connectivity, I presume that... Yep. allows a latency to creep in in certain aspects, but not the other. Uh, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Was that something yeah, we that, spent a, yeah, was that organic? Well, we or, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Organic. Well, it was a thing that we decided was important. And so we spent time on it. Like we would do latency tests and try different settings and experiment with things. And uh, we were often like taking pictures of two monitors to see like what the, de- what the timers on them to see what the delay between two machines was. Ah. It was a thing we spent a lot of time on, particularly in the early days as we were figuring things out um, and pushed us to make a number of design decisions like like writing this app natively in C++, for example. That's the other big question I have. So let's just dive in there. My understanding is a lot of the like original developers on Tuple, as I read them, are like famous web developers, right? So like, you guys do a lot of web development. How did that transition to building a native product work, right? Like, Did you say, okay, I'm going to take the next six months and learn how to code it? I mean, I'm exaggerating a little, but you know, how, how do you, like, where does one start? Like, you know, if you, I work as an Android developer, but you said, if you said, Hey, go build a windows native application, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd say, okay, like, where's the book that tells me how to build native apps, right? How, how did you, how did you folks make that transition? Well, I did not. Uh, <laughs> I have two co-founders. We're right. both, we're all, all three of us are technical, but we decided pretty early on that it didn't make sense to have all three of us writing code. Like mm-hmm. someone should be on sales and marketing and being on podcasts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was me. And so that left my co-founders, Joel and Spencer. And Tuple's success is quite a bit at you know it, it, thanks to them and their willingness to go learn this these new skills, in particular a CTO Spencer. Um, he like he really dove in and just accepted like, okay, I'm gonna have to learn about real-time communication protocols. I'm going to have to learn about C++. Uh, also Swift for doing a, like the native Mac OS controls. And he, and with, with Joel's help, kind of like just really dove in pretty fearlessly <laughs> and just said, yeah, this is not like what we know. That's, you know, it's, it's just not. And so that, and that was the big risk of the company in the early days, I felt like, was just, can we successfully build this product it was. It felt pretty obvious through various validation exercises that I did, mostly by selling uh, vaporware <laughs> for a while. Um, it was pretty clear that people would pay for it if we could build something that was like what I was promising them. Hmm. And the question was, can a handful of web developers or could a couple of web developers reskill themselves enough to build a product that is good enough that it you know achieves the what we're promising? Did you start with like? Electron, because I, I imagine like an ele- electron kind of app would have been easier for a web developer. That would be my natural sort of thought process. Did you start with that or was it? Yeah. In the, in the f- so we built, I think the, the version of Tuple that exists today was basically the third major rewrite of the app. Oh, wow. Actually, I mean, kind of fourth now, but, but 
basically there were two false starts. We definitely started off in Electron, mm-hmm. hoping like that that would work for us mm-hmm. um, because it was most familiar. And it felt like this is convenient and it's going to give us sort of the same performance that everybody else gets, which is fine. Mm. And it has some limitations around creating the kind of experience we wanted, especially like why I talk about that seamlessness. OS level integration through an abstraction is just, you know, is not as good as you can get if you have the full host operating system at your fingertips, like you get when you were like coding in C or, or Swift. And so we wrote an initial, there was like an initial spike version that we threw away. Then there was like a, I think a pretty, pretty solid attempt in Electron that we eventually decided, yeah, like, you know, we're going to need to like, to get what we want, we think we have to compile our own version of Chromium and then our fork, like fork Chromium, fork Electron to get the kind of control we want. Do we really want to maintain these things? Probably not. Let's just go all the way. Let's go fully native and get as close to the metal as we can so that we can eke out these performance wins that we want and have the seamlessness and like OS level integration that we want. And you have native clients for the Mac that because I've used that one. Are you thinking about other platforms as well or, or do you already have? We have a Linux client in beta right now that is, uh, the beta getting is, is increasingly open and that's going pretty well. Windows is, hmm, I wouldn't say it's on the table right now. I think we are getting used to being a multi-client company right now and attempting to bring the clients more in parity. And uh, Windows is a thing that maybe we discuss a little bit later. But there's no one in the company that runs Windows day-to-day. So it's kind of like, well, this is going to be a big lift <laughs> to, to get over here. For sure. Can you briefly talk to us about what the tech stack is as much as you can share? Like, What does the tech stack look like for Cupel? I mean, I'm increasingly far away from it. I'm, I'm increasingly the wrong person to ask this question. <laughs> But I think I've I think I've basically touched on it right, which is that it's it's mostly a big pile of C plus plus. Our we use WebRTC for the real time um, components of of Tuple, but with some changes and setting like we've had some, we've landed some patches upstream. We've also forked in the past and made some some local changes. We've tweaked our settings there and like done some experimentation around that to to arrive at a setup that we like. We have our own uh, signaling service that handles. The like connect a lot of like sort of keep sort of keeping a persistent connection between tuple clients and a server mm-hmm. and saying hey who's online that's on my team and then um, helping broker the initial connection between two clients mm-hmm. like when I actually call you we need to, you to know about it uh, and then we there need to be an, like a key exchange to set up the encrypted tunnel uh, between the clients so there's we have a, a server in in between there that that handles the initial thing and then creates a peer to peer connection and that is what is that written in Go I think I think that's a Go service yeah. That's, I think that's the main thing. Right now, we're, we're adding a new architectural piece, which is to allow calls with more than three people. Uh, we are adding uh, like uh, media servers in the mix, sort of like uh, to make that tolerable bandwidth-wise. Yeah, I was going to follow up on that because currently, Tuple is just two people, right? As in, and is that where the name comes from? Like two people plus the programming, the play on the program? It actually kind of is, yeah. That was one of the, one of the pieces that we liked about that name. <laughs> Tuple, was, the idea was kind of like, yeah, a, a tuple takes disparate elements and combines them together. Uh, and so does our tool. And so that was cool. And it kind of sounds like two people. So it's a good name. Well, like, well done on the name, I, I'd say. <laughs> so you were saying that like you are considering now maybe adding, you know, multiple, multiple sort of like people into the same call, so to speak. Yeah. Does that change the architect? I mean, I imagine it does, right? Like, yes. Okay. I, so I actually misspoke. It's the, the current max is three people. 
So oh, for, okay. we, you can do three people on a call. And what we do is we set up a mesh network right now. So it's, it's, it's still peer-to-peer with three people. But as you can imagine, when you add a fourth person, now everyone needs you know, three connections. And then when you add a fifth person, like it's, it expands, the number of connections expands very quickly. And so it works great for two. It works okay for three. It's, we're not going to push it to four. Like this, you would need, everyone would need amazing connections mm. uh, for, to, to, for a mesh to continue to work past there. Uh, and so we are going to move to an architecture where uh, like people communicate with a, a server that combines streams. And this appears to be the current best way to do this thing. Uh, is you, you, you move from direct peer connections to like there's like an intermediary somewhere. And so people can just connect to that and get the streams of everybody. That makes sense. Combined into one. From the product perspective, right? What what do you think is the logical end for Tuple? Right? Are you going to become like I mean, logical end makes it sound like yeah, that's you're going to reach here and you're going to be happy. But it, do you imagine it is just going to evolve into like a screen sharing software? Like, is it going to be competing against Zoom or like Hangouts with a focus on screen sharing? How do you think about that? Right? Like, you know, because one thing I I immediately thought of is like you know we have different kinds of developers. Right? For example, as an Android developer. I usually have like Android Studio, which is like this IntelliJ editor, and I have an emulator that, you know, and that's my work setup. I'm curious, have you, like, how, how did you go about thinking that, no, what we really want is to like plug into the native system and just think about it as a screen sharing versus, you know, I'll, I'll give, because IntelliJ also has like uh, this sharing thing, but it's sort of, I think it's called Code With Me, which is you have to have an IntelliJ editor and then you can just share the editor pieces, right? Tuple almost gives you a window into like the other person's computer, which makes it far more like sort of uh, easy and intuitive frictionless, I guess. But how do you think about the product? Like, do you think at one point you're going to focus it and tailor it more towards programming folks and give them like, you know, oh, here's an easy way to share code snippets or I'm just making things up on the fly. But how do you think about that? What is like logically at the end, do you expect it to just be the best screen sharing software or how do you make those decisions? Yeah, I think so. We always intended to make a purpose-built tool. Mm-hmm. So Tuple is for pair programming. And when we make decisions about how do we design it, how many clicks does this thing take? Do you have to get permission to do remote control? What does a friends list look like? Mm-hmm. What does the copy say? Which streams do I prioritize? How much bandwidth do we use? How much CPU do we use? Do we support command tab? Like All these questions always come down to, we're doing this for programmers to do pair programming. And so... That is, that's our niche. And that is a niche I'm very happy in. Um, I like making things for programmers. I like when programmers have a purpose-built tool. As a programmer, I like when tools are made for me. Right. And so I don't have much interest in leaving that niche. I think there's tons of opportunity here still. Like this is a, like, there's more programmers every day. There's more remote programmers every day. Tuple is built for pair programming, but it still could get a lot better for programmers. Like there's still lots more we want to do beyond just making it a more capable screen sharing tool, but also make it like more programmery, like moving our configuration to like a thing you can store in some dot files. So you can like sync it across your, your uh, various machines, adding hooks so that you can do things programmatically when a tuple session starts or ends, or when someone comes online, you know, get, like, make it extensible as a, as a tool. There are a number of things that like, I, I think we will continue to lean to, this is for programmers, we're going to make it more programmery, not less. Mm. Yes, I know there is this large, huge market over here of, yeah, screen sharing can be used for lots of people. You could, we could just say, we're the best remote collaboration tool for teams. Yeah, I know that there's a big market there. If we wanted to like raise a bunch of money on that thesis, I'm sure we could. But I 
I'm very happy here. Like there's there's all, there's plenty of market here. Uh, there's plenty of interesting problems here. I like working with. I like building for programmers. Like programmers give awesome bug reports. <laughs> um, it's true, isn't it? it? <laughs> yeah, it's just a great audience. Like it's it's fun to make things uh, for them. Uh, and so yeah, I, I I think I don't think there's a un, un, under my leadership. I don't think Tuple would go into like the mass market. Mm. I think that's not what I'm interested in. So I see us staying probably you know here ish for a while. That makes and. I've used Cupel, by the way, uh, for the folks who are listening. I must say it has been definitely the best experience. And I'm not just saying that because obviously you're on the show. It truly, it's funny because when I started, I actually told like some of the engineers on my team, I was like, hey, there's this thing. I want to get us to pair program more, just spend a little more time in this remote, like work from home world. And we tried Tuple. And initially I almost was like, wait, is it actually running or do I have to do something? Like, Because that's how seamless the experience was. So it, it, it definitely shows that you're focusing on something. I can see that, okay, there's thought put into each of these small decisions. And it's unless you try Tuple, it's really hard to explain that because both, and the funny thing is like, I remember with my engineer, we were talking, we we're like, oh, this works well. And, and he's like, I wonder why I can't see you. And I'm like, well, let's see. I'm sure there must be that too. So, but you open it up and then you're like, oh yeah, you can add the other person's face on the side there, right? And the thing that blew my mind, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, was you get multiple curses, like true multiple curses, right? Which is, I can literally almost feel like I can tell my, you know, like my colleague, hey, give me a second. Let me just try this on your screen. And I get a keyboard on cursor and it's just like almost, into that person's like environment, right? Was that intentional or was that like, I, I'm I, I'm just mind blown by that feature. That that did, doesn't sound easy because two cursors, you know, is that, I mean, actually maybe I should ask, is that something that's easy or did you put some time like, you know, walk, walk me through that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, there is one mouse cursor in macOS and any uh, implications to the contrary is a very carefully orchestrated illusion. <laughs> so it's smoke and mirrors. A, oh, wow. That took, a, that took a lot of work. Ah. Um, so there's a lot of things like deconstructing the Mac OS mouse acceleration code in order to re-implement it, um, painting fake cursors, uh, transferring the bitmaps that are used to create alternate cursor styles like the iBeam or the grabby hand, that kind of thing, to show up at the right time. Uh, it was a, it was a lot of work. Multi curses is is no is is a, a, a iceberg feature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone should have their own mouse cursor. No problem. I'll talk to you in several months. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was that was tricky. The closest I can think about it is like you know the Mac has this thing called screen sharing where you can share into like another Mac. Tuple almost feels like take that but just make it ten times better and less seamless, right? Because screen sharing in itself is pretty good on the Mac, right? Like it's it's the tool that I use, but it's obviously very laggy and I can almost feel like, you know, a trail of cursors follow me as I sort of move things around. Tuple feels like, oh, just take that, but make it much better. And that's, mm. I would feel so. Well, thank you. That's that's flattering. Uh, it's it's great. Yeah, so that that actually kind of touches on, well, I thought of a thing. You, you'd ask me sort of, what's what's the end state of Tuple? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and it's to me, it's it's not go broader. We are coming up on maybe this. Maybe this is an illusion, but it feels like you know, with a year of development, I think feature completeness is potentially plausible-ish. Mm. Like, are you ever really done? Like adding stuff? Probably not. Like completely no. But like, 
In terms of big pieces, like critical things that are like, this is what you need, like considering that the tool is intentionally constrained and is for a particular use case, eventually you kind of say, I think we built most of the things into this that we want to be into it. Like you're sacrificing simplicity eventually, right? If you just keep going, like eventually one of the things that people love about it, which is that it is purpose built, goes away because they just say this has so much in it. But at that point, that opens another door, which is like now we can we can just optimize this thing to within an inch of its life. Mm-hmm. Like you can't spend too much time reducing latency. Right. Right. Like it, it, like give me another five milliseconds. I don't care if it takes you all quarter. You know, like if we can if we can chop off eight milliseconds of our, our like you know non network latency mm-hmm. uh, for all customers, that's like that's amazing, and that helps us like dig this moat around the mm-hmm. the product. Or add a couple, like add another nine of reliability, like or not even like like uptime, but more like make it work in more circumstances. So a thing that happens is like a lot of the time, like our average call quality rating is usually like a four point six out of five. Mm-hmm. So it's like it it works well um, in a lot of circumstances, but there are still like you know dozens of people giving us a one, a two, or a three each day. Where like like if your network is really terrible, uh, you have a certain poorly configured VPN uh, mm. for your company. There are certain... Uh, you have a firewall that is you know, really aggressive. There are places that we fall down. Or sometimes... And sometimes it's, it's not our fault at all. It's like there's just horrible... Late, like you're, you're in the middle of nowhere. You have a horrible... Like your, your Wi-Fi is super congested. But maybe we can detect that and tell you and like help you fix it. Um, so there's, there's, there's this march of make it so that like it just, it just works as much as possible, even when you throw horrible settings at it. No, that makes perfect sense. I, I know we're getting close to time, but I did have a couple of few last minute questions. I'm going to like just throw them at you in no okay. particular order. In general, like, do you have, I'm sure you've been pair programming a lot, <laughs> obviously, owing, uh, owing to Tuple. What tips do you have for our listeners, right? Like, you know, if I can start off with one, which is like download and try Tuple. So I kicked it off with that one. Give us some more tips on pair programming. What, what do you think are like things that'll help programmers become better at that? Well, I'll, I'll give you a meta tip first or a high-level tip, which is just... I've written a lot about this. Uh, if you go to learntopair.com, okay. that's our pair programming guide. Very nice. Uh, and I've got a, a good number of articles and videos and podcast recordings and things. So you can... If you, wanna, if you want a lot of content on this, it is there. And that'll be in the show notes for sure. Great. But I would say... I would say a few things. One, don't make a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's really not a big deal. Like you can literally just be like, "Hey, uh, programmer friend of mine, will you like look at this with me while I do it?" And or just like, "Hey, can I get a second set of eyes on this?" I just make it low ceremony and just like write code with someone else that can see your screen. So my official email announcement about us wanting to pair program not a great suggestion. Uh no, I mean that, that's fine too. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think people sometimes get intimidated by that phrase of like pair programming. And they think it's like this practice that they need to know about. Like, come give a violin concerto is like <laughs> what they're hearing. And like, I'm suggesting say more like, come jam. Like, here's a drum. Like, bang on this. And just like, make it, just make it low. Don't make it scary. And don't make a big deal of it. And don't worry about if you're doing it right. Because literally, it really is just two people looking at the same code uh, at the same time. And so if you have two people looking at the same code at the same time, you are pairing in my book. And just try to take advantage of the fact that you have another smart person there with you and like help let them help you kind of make good decisions, pick their brain on things, sort of discuss design choices, that sort of thing. Mm. So don't, don't make too big a deal of it um, is sort of my advice for, for people that are intimidated by it or like are, are new to it. 
And I think you will see your code improve. You will see your skills improve. You cannot pair with somebody for like an hour, especially if you're watching them write code and not be like, whoa, whoa, whoa what was that shortcut you just used right there? Right. Like, how did you jump right to that error? Or how did you, you know, jump to the, the test? Or how did you p- p- pop that window over there without touching your mouse? Like, there's you just always learn something. So that's nice. If you're a bit, f- for, if you've had, some people have had an experience of pairing that was negative. And so they've been turned off from pairing by bad past experiences. And, to those folks, I would say, recognize that people are uh, some like there's different levels of goodness at pairing. Mm-hmm. So you can have a bad pair and try not to let that turn you off the whole practice. Mm-hmm. Like I say the same thing when you like when friends are looking for therapists. Yeah. Therapy is a great thing and mm-hmm. is really a useful practice. And there are plenty of mediocre to bad therapists. <laughs> and so if you have a bad therapy session with someone that you tried, like don't be like, oh, I tried therapy. It was terrible. Mm. Like, no, you, you, the experience is highly dependent on the participants. And so it could be you were in a bad mood. It could be you, they were in a bad mood. They could have just been like pathologically bad pairing partners. Like you may have just run into a, had some bad luck. Right. And so if you are sort of scarred or turned off by the idea of pairing, maybe give it another shot with someone a bit more promising. It helps to choose someone you get along with already that you like, that you have some trust built up with, uh, that you feel safe with. Those things are nice attributes for this. Mm-hmm. And then, I guess beyond that, I would say, uh, recognize that, that while pairing, it's totally possible to jump into it and you don't have to make a big deal of it. It also is a skill that you'll get better at. Hmm. So if you practice it a bit more, you'll notice things. Like you can do like a little, a little mini retro after a pairing session and just say like, how was this? Like, did, did we get distracted at some point? Like, would it have been, hit, would it have been nice for us to take breaks hmm. uh, a bit more often? Or could, should we have maybe swapped who was driving um, halfway through? Would that have been nice? Or... Did I say anything that made you feel uncomfortable or like made you seize up? Or it's a skill, and over time you will you'll learn to get better at it. Thank you. That's like I low ceremony. That's what I heard first, which is like don't make a big deal about it. Pair length sessions, so don't like you know don't go for like two hour pairing sessions or like you know if you if you feel it, but like recognize the length of how long. Don't let one time negative experiences uh, affect. And lastly, this is something you can get better at, which I think is like a pretty powerful thing, right? Which is you. Yeah, don't try this and say, "Yep, I tried it." Is out of out of question now. You know, you can start getting better at it. And yeah, those those are powerful tips. Thank you. Before we start to wind down, I have to ask, and this is more out of like my personal sort of desire to ask you. You are by far one of the most prolific conference speakers I've seen. You you have this beautiful art of storytelling. What are some tips you have for like the few of us who wanna? Who, who speak at conferences and want to get even better at it, or even like a lot of our listeners who want to like start there. Uh, you are like a Jedi master at this, and I'm definitely going to put a whole bunch of talks here. So, but how do you think about that? Like, is this something that you think through carefully? Have you been practicing? Do you do something that helps with this? Yeah. Like, how do we become a Ben at speaking? Well, this ties in nicely to something I've been working on that I need to release soon and I'm uh, hopefully close to, which is I, back when I was speaking a lot, um, I wrote, I wouldn't say it's quite a book, but maybe an extensive guide on oh. uh, giving talks. It's called Speaking for Hackers. Um, it's on you can find it on my GitHub okay. um, under the Speaking for Hackers uh, org, I guess. And ho- eventually, this will be a like real public website that I'll point people to. Actually, if you go to sfhbook.netlify.app right now, actually you can see it in its current state. SFH for Speaking for Hackers, and it's still slightly in draft status, I would say, but 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 probably useful. But if you don't want to do that, I would just say at a high level, I guess my high level advice is a conference talk is a performance. It is not a great medium for 
transferring information. People think a talk is an opportunity to teach the audience a lot of things. And I think a talk is a nice opportunity to teach the audience two things, three things. Mm. They're going to remember a couple things. And it's more about giving them an experience, I think. Bored people don't listen to anything. So you have to be entertaining to teach your audience stuff. Otherwise, they'll tune out and they'll go on Twitter. And so <laughs> I would say your first thing is don't be boring. Like come up with ways to like keep attention, but like recognize that like why is your talk better than just reading documentation mm. is a question I think you should be asking. So if you're like, I want to show off this cool tool, great. Show off the tool, but do it in an interesting way. Like do it live or do some really creative things or can you give some examples? I, I can think of some of the ones that you have done, but like I'd love for you to maybe. Well, yeah. So like my like I said, that refactoring from good to great talk is my most popular. And it's, I think part of it is because it's live coding. And so everyone can see that like I am actually writing code on stage. And that freaks people out. It makes people deeply uncomfortable that I'm going to get really stuck. Yeah. And like we <laughs> won't true. actually make it out of the, the branches. And like when stuff like the test, like you start making changes, the tests start failing. And it's like, and I'm taking suggestions from the audience and we're trying stuff. Like people, everyone's like, whoa. This is risky. Like, is he going to be able to pull this off? We are a bunch and of sympathetic that, or empathetic folks, right? You know, it's like, oh, like you know, like let, let me help you out. Like, you know, I, I see you're going to make this mistake. Hey, you're going to you missed this semicolon. It's going to like bite you in the back. <laughs> and so I think that's good. Like, that's intentional. Like, I, I want people to be a little bit on edge. Not because I want them scared, but like I want them to be like, whoa. It's like it's like watching a trapeze act. Like if <laughs> right. there's if there's no risk in it, it's not as exciting. <laughs> but when you're like, yikes, okay, here we go. Like everyone pays attention. And so that is just like one technique I have used to like keep attention from folks is just like do a high risk version. I love it. I love it. Uh-huh. Uh, but you could there's, there's a bunch of ways. Like there's like there's like so yeah, you can it's not that live coding is particularly mystically powerful, although it kind of is for programmers. Um but but thinking along those lines of like why is this better and more interesting than reading documentation? Why is it worth flying here and being in the room with me to see this talk? Versus like a recording or just like reading a readme somewhere when I could just skim it much, much faster or watch a talk at 1.5x or something. Like, why is it worth that? And I think that's, that's the answer. A friend of mine once said, I think of CFP as not standing for call for proposals, but calling for call for performances. Mm. And I think that's, you could maybe just take that piece of advice right there and end up in the top 10% of, of talk quality, I think. Perfect. Ben... I cannot thank you so much for your time. This is, as I said, uh, a, a great honor for me to have uh, to speak to you. My pleasure. Any parting words of wisdom? And I, please, if folks want to reach out to you, you know, what are some good ways uh, that we can do that? Uh, my parting words of wisdom are spend a lot of time with people you love. Can't go wrong with that. And tell people you love you love them. If people want to uh, reach out to me, that's great. I'm into that. Uh, I'm on Twitter. R00K is probably your your best bet. I respond to Twitter probably faster than email most of the time. So, but do it publicly. No DMs are getting a little overwhelming these days. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, I, I'm also going to pitch. You have a podcast too, which is really good. I'm I'm surprised I haven't I haven't actually heard before. Like as I was prepping for this, I've blown through at least like ten episodes. So I'm I'm gra- glad I have like an entire catalog to listen to. But yeah, please tell us a little about your podcast too. Sure. It's called The Art of Product. Uh, I've been recording it for years, four years, five years or something. It's amazing. Um, Some number of years. I don't know. A long time. Hundreds of episodes. It is uh, sort of a chronicling of my journey of being a programmer and then being a business 
on like a being a business founder and CEO, along with my co-host Derek Reimer. Derek is on break right now, uh, so it's been me and some guest hosts. But you can hear from like I record pretty often with Adam Wathen, who created Tailwind CSS. Oh, nice. Also, Penelope Fippen, who um, oh. is the technical advisor to the CTO at Stripe. Nice. Uh, so we have some really interesting perspectives of other indie businesses, and also you know inside look at a really large, successful technical business. And yeah, I think it's pretty pretty cool. Ben, uh, oh, I just remembered one thing, which I think yeah, I have to mention this. Tuple supports a lot of open source folks, right? Like you're pretty big on open source. What's the thought process there? Open source is good. We want more of it. Uh, we are happy to uh, throw free Tuple at it. We rely on open source to succeed. And so we are very happy to give back to that world. Um, so if you go to tuple.app slash OSS, um, you, you'll see that uh, Tuple is free for open source software teams. So if you're doing some OSS work, and you would like to try out Tuple for, for no cost, we are more than happy to have you do that. Ben, thank you so much, both for all the good work you've been doing for the developer community, but also thank you for Tuple and thank you for the good stuff that you've been uh, enabling us programmers to do. My pleasure. Thanks for the good interview. Thank you all for listening and we will catch you all in the next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Before you get going, don't forget to check out my free course on Git. This is going to be the course that shows you everything that you need to know in order to get started. It is the 80-20 of Git. You'll learn the 20% of commands that are going to give you well over 80% of the benefit. Heck, I'd even say over 90% of the benefit. In fact, these are the commands that I use every single day, and I rarely step out of these boundaries. To learn more and to watch the course, you can go to donfelker.com git, or just go to donfelker.com YouTube and check it out there for free. I really hope you enjoy it. That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit and produce all the episodes here on Fragmented. You can find more Fragmented episodes at fragmentedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.